Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. And uh, hello and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is Jim Brown. I'm a member of the club's Asia Pacific Affairs Forum, and I'll be facilitating tonight's program. At this time, I'd like to extend a special welcome to any new club members who have joined us this evening or are watching the program online. It is now my pleasure to welcome our two guests from the Asian Art Museum, Dr. Jay Shu, the museum's Barbara Bass Bacher Director and CEO, who will be our guest speaker, and Deb Clearwaters, the museum's Director of Education and Interpretation, who will moderate tonight's program. Asian for All, how to be a 21st century museum. Deb, I can't believe that we've known each other now, what has it been, 10 years? And as I think back, it was just 10 years ago that I was sitting in the museum's Samson Hall and you were addressing our new docent class, telling us what to expect over the next three years. As an Asian Art Museum docent, it's been quite a journey, and a very positive one, I might add. I've had and seen tremendous change at the museum. And as I am sure Jay will be telling us later this evening, the Asian Art Museum has undergone a complete transformation. It is now my pleasure to turn the microphone over to Deb Clearwaters, who will moderate the program and introduce us to Dr. Jay Shu. Deb? Good evening, everybody. Hello, Jay. Hello, Deb. <laughs> Um, we're just tickled to be here and just wanted to thank all of you for being here in person and everybody who's joining us online. And we can't see you because it's completely blinding, but um, we know you're out there. And I just wanted to say a few thank yous before we get started. Of course, to Jim, it's been a joy to work with you at the Asian Art Museum as one of our wonderful docents. And I also want to thank the staff and the other volunteers at the Commonwealth Club, Ian McCraig. Lillian Nakagawa, Adam Hirschfielder, Mark Kirshner, and John Zipperer for all your support. It's really an honor to be here at the Commonwealth Club. And um, our goal tonight is to talk a little bit about what we mean when we talk about being a 21st century museum. As Jim said, we've been in a moment of change, and we expect to be in that moment of change for some time. And so we wanted to organize our conversation tonight sort of looking back, thinking about our history and our legacy with transparency and honesty, looking at the recent past, you know, sort of looking around what's been happening through the transformation and also through the pandemic, and then looking ahead to the future. And someone that I think both Jay and I admire deeply is Lonnie Bunch from the Smithsonian Institution and he talks about museums being uh, embracing their roles as institutions that have a role, a social justice role to play, and also that should be embracing the nuance of our history. And I want to read a quote that um, really has got me thinking a lot about our role at the Asian Art Museum. Quote, Americans in some ways want to romanticize history. They want selective history. As the great John Hope Franklin used to say, you need to use African-American history as a corrective to help people understand the fullness, complexity, the nuance of their history. 
And so with that, I'd love to ask Jay, who uh, we've worked together for quite some time now. 13 years. We know each other pretty well. And we think about what it means to be a 21st century museum. So Jay, would you tell us what you think about yes, that Yes, uh, that's an excellent question. Before I get into uh, sharing some of my thoughts, I want to echo your gratitude to all the individuals involved in the organization uh, of this talk. And it's a delight and honor to be here. The light is so bright, I already feel inspired. <laughs> and actually, this is my second time in the Commonwealth Club. The first was soon after my appointment. I came to San Francisco to lead the Asian Museum in 2008. Then I had an opportunity to speak about museum, my understanding, back then in the old home on Market Street. A decade later, I'm here today, so it's another wonderful opportunity. I think this question is going to be a question for a while, that we are, of course, in the 21st century now. That does not mean all the museums, ours included, is a 21st century museum. So I think to be a 21st century museum really requires transformative changes. What do, that, what do I mean by that? I think the museum needed to resolutely look at all the fundamentals, focus on the present, and also looking to the future. And now one thing I feel that is most beautiful about America is that we can always look at our flaws straight on, and we can always reinvent ourselves in order to make a more perfect union. So I think this is the time to really re-examine all the fundamentals. 13 years ago when I got here, I already started asking ourselves the question whether the existing business model that relying on private philanthropy is a sustainable model to operate museums, whatever that museum may be as an industry. In the last year, the pandemic and the social crisis really once again laid bare some of the deep flaws of our nation. So I think this is time to really looking resolutely at the past, re-examine the fundamentals so we can learn and we can change. And then we must also focus on the present. And I like to use the key word here is relevance. You know, we're in a globalized world, but I would say globalism starts in your own neighborhood. We need to always focus on serving our own communities, and particularly the segments of community that has been underserved for a very long time. We need to be relevant, engaging, inspiring. And then I think we're looking to the future. I think the word I like to use is experience because people going through their life actually collect experiences. I think this is the most important way that the museum can serve. And that experience must also be underscored by the value that museum champions, but also we always look at the impact. How can we can achieve the maximum positive impact in serving our community, really making Asian art and culture for all? Then we also need to look at sustainability. In the post-pandemic world, I think probably the programs at on-site and online, real and virtual, will coexist. We will never go back to the pre-pandemic days, nor should we. So I think I don't really have a definitive answer, but I think we have some blueprint, some guiding questions for us to 
get on a journey to find out what really means to be a 21st century museum. I think each organization will have the same question, Definitely. whether it's your museum or not. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And um, so let's dive into some of the origins of the Asian Art Museum, which is really a good place to start in thinking about how we got to the place that we're at today. So I'm sharing a, a very cute picture of you. You, uh, Jay is in the top picture. He's the little the little tyke there, about three years old in this picture, <laughs> 1966, the same year that the Asian Art Museum was founded. So I just thought it was delightful to consider that you and the museum are about the same age. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> it's really, <laughs> this is, uh, I think this is the first time my uh, sort of uh, early childhood picture is shown publicly. <laughs> thank you. And uh, indeed, that's me, this three-year-old baby. And what a different world Shanghai was, or China was at that time, and what different world America was, and the, the drastic contrast between those two countries. Then, about a quarter of a century later, I came here to lead the Asian Art Museum. So in the lower left corner of the slide, that was my first day in May 2008. And this is also my first executive decision to turn a free day from Tuesday to Sunday, with the understanding, the working family, really their time to enjoy museum the weekends. And so we, our journey already started for me to serve our community in an enhanced, improved way. And I stood out there for about two and a half hours. I want to personally greet all the visitors and also want to learn who are our patrons. So touched to see three generation family, grandparents, working young, working couples and little babies, from all corners of the communities and uh, to enjoy the Asian Art Museum. So access is really um, a core pillar of your, your 21st century museum. Yes. So and in that regard, I would say that my personal story, yeah, the first generation immigrant is an American story. And our museum story is also an American story, how we found it, what our past was, what do we stand for today, and what the future will be. So tell me a little bit about how you think of San Francisco as being, you know, what were all of the conditions that had to come into place for the, the activists, the people who founded the Asian Art Museum? What were all the things that came into place to make San Francisco a city that needed an Asian Art Museum? Yes, we always say that Asian Art Museum was founded in 1966. Absolutely correct, we opened the door. But actually, the, I think, origin of the Asian Art museum, or Asian art and culture had a much deeper roots. It really started with gold rush. And ever since then, there's such a vibrant growth of the Asian American communities. And San Francisco is located geographically on the Pacific Rim. People like to say that we're in the west coast of the United States. Correct. But I would say we're on the east coast of the Pacific. We're really this gig gateway, this connecting dot. So the community really worked very hard to, in order to establish the Asian Art Museum. And a group of uh, very uh, um, selfless citizens interested in Asian art and culture formed the Society for Asian Art in order to convince Avery Brindage to donate his collection to the city of San Francisco. Brindage was not easy to work with. So also several mayors have worked very, very hard. And ever since then, every mayor 
has been supporting the Asian Art Museum, as well as our entire community. But one aspect of the story that has never been really told well is the contribution of the Asian American community to the founding of the Asian Art Museum. Here on the slide, you see two pictures. One is Zhou Yue, who was very active in Chinatown and as a um, businessman and also as an activist. And also over there, Alice Lowe, the first and for a long time the only Asian board member at the Asian Art Museum. She herself is a very, very successful businessman, but also a community uh, activist, very important. So this kind of story we need to amplify. So it's a really community built and founded Asian Art Museum. And I wanted to mention Alice Lowe in the, in the lower right of this picture with um, James Cahill. This is the first docent class. Again, uh, an effort that preceded the opening of the Asian Art Museum. So this is the history that Jim Brown uh, embodies today. That's been going on since 1965, I think, is when that class began. And she was the one of the first female uh, Asian-American CEOs of a major advertising firm in San Francisco, an amazing woman who actually interviewed me for my position at the Asian Art Museum in or 1998, I think it was. That's why I know we worked together for 13 years, because when I arrived here, you were already here. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, Alice was an amazing uh, change agent herself at the yeah. institution. And, and uh, I would say that the condition of San Francisco as a community, whether you're Asian or not, there are the pervasive interest in Asian art and the culture. I'm always delighted to, to, to hear the story that uh, the Zen Buddhism entered the United States, American life through San Francisco. Yoga, I understand, one of every 10 Americans practicing yoga. It also entered the, the, our life through San Francisco. So it's very, very uh, deep interest that their community has for Asian art and culture. And on the right side of slides, I think the artist Joe Brotherton is doing a campaign to showcase some of the highlights from the Brindage collection in order to galvanize the community support to vote for yes on Proposition A, which is a bond measure, about 2.5 million or more, in order to build a wing or a museum for housing the Brindage collection when it was donated. And I understand himself was very interested in Zen Buddhism himself. Hmm. Yeah, Joe Brotherton. I love that picture. So the cultural condition was here too. Yeah, for sure. And um, sorry, I didn't mean to jump jump so abruptly into this conversation, but we did mention Brundage a little bit earlier. And one of the things that we were able to focus on in the shelter-in-place year where we were, you know, all stuck at home and focusing on internal work, we did some internal work with the bust of Avery Brundage in the entryway. Could you talk about that experience and your thinking about that? Yeah, I think this is a very good example how, as an institution, we resolutely looking at our history. Avery Brindage donated the collection to the city and the county of San Francisco in the late 50s and early 60s, I think two or three times. And then the city raised the money through a bond measure to build a wing next to Dion in Golden Gate Park to house the collection. At the beginning, it was called Avery Brindage Collection of Asian Art. Later, it changed to the Asian Art Museum of San Francisco. So the city, in other words, the people of our community owns the collection. So 
the slide on the left where it shows the bust. The bust was commissioned and also installed by the Asian Art Commission in the 1980s as a public expression of gratitude for the gifting of the collection by Avery Brindage. Asian Art Commission was founded at the beginning of the museum as a public commission to govern the Asian Art Museum. Today, while we still very much celebrate the great art in our collection and the cultures produce those marvelous works of art, we also must be very resolute to tell a holistic story, looking at the Avery Brindage legacy comprehensively. And one could not escape the fact that he was a racist, he was a sexist, that he harbored horrendous actions, particularly in sports arena. He was a sympathizer to Hitler, particularly in 1936 Nazi Olympics in Berlin, and he was trying to normalize the apartheid state at the time was South Africa for the uh, 19, I believe it's uh, 1978 Olympics. Then in the same Olympics, which was held in Mexico, he censured African-American sportsmen from America who showcased their black power salute on the award podium. That is a symbol very poignantly reflecting on the rampant racism in our country at that time, and he chose to censure them. So all these actions cannot be pardoned. So by keeping the buster there, that I think will send a wrong message, because this is a place of honor. Yet we want to do that very thoughtfully and methodically. As I said, we are a city museum, and we want to make sure that we do the things in a methodical and thoughtful way. So actually, the discussion about the Brindage Lexi began before the pandemic. But during the pandemic, there's more momentum internally, as well as, of course, society at large. And with our, the resolute support of our board and the staff, we decided to remove uh, his bust. But no, we're not going to raise him from history because he is part of the founding of the Asian Art Museum. In future, we want, in a very transparent way, tell the story about our museum's founding, about his legacy, and I think it could be a very important teaching moment for all of us, for our community and for our society. At the same time, we celebrate the great art that the people in Asia have created, because this, the art is still so relevant in our life today, and cross-culture understanding and empathy is, I think, is needed more than ever. And we're going to be looking at some art in a minute. And I just, uh, this, this shows also the inscription that the, the, the Brundage bust is actually blocking. This is an, the Asian Art Museum is in the 1917 building of the old library. And so now this inscription of the original architecture has been revealed again. Um, so in talking about the gold rush and thinking about immigration to, you know, settlers in the Bay Area, we also have to remember the uh, people who were here before the European-American settlers and the people who were here before the Mexican uh, occupiers of this land. And so the museum has also, as part of its 
uh, diversity, equity, access, and inclusion project, which has been ongoing for, for some several years. It started out as a accessibility task force that was trying to find ways to make sure that all of our exhibitions and the physical plant was fully accessible to all, our vis- all of our visitors. And then that team realized they really wanted to do more racial equity work too. So a subcommittee of this uh, staff-led team has been working with indigenous advisors to create a land acknowledgement, which as a city department, we're also encouraged to adopt. Uh, The city and county of San Francisco has an office of racial equity that um, has legislation supporting it, and they are holding institutions, all city departments like us, accountable to this work, which is exciting, and we're delighted to have the support and the resources. So I just wanted to uh, share, this is a slide that we've been using in our public programs, and the um, our public programming team has been leading an effort to bring together arts organizations from across the Bay Area, and they're having a, a workshop, I think it's next Monday, with these advisors from the Ramaytush Ohlone community to help other arts organizations in developing their land acknowledgments and also going beyond them. So I think this land acknowledgement could go for, for the Commonwealth Club, too, because it talks about the San Francisco Peninsula. So the Asian Art Museum acknowledges that we are located on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants and indigenous stewards of the San Francisco Peninsula. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramaytush community and by affirming their sovereign rights as first peoples. And, you know, another thing that we were talking about is sort of the founding and wanting to complicate the, the founding story and not just, you know, kind of take this lazy way out of saying, well, the, the museum was founded by Avery Brundage, because as you were explaining, it's much more complicated than that. Many people were involved long before he even agreed to donate his collection. And I thought it was very interesting to look at this slide and look at the legacy of the leadership of the Asian Art Museum and see that for the first 30 years... The museum was, uh, I almost said ruled. (laughs) Directed. Directed directed by uh, white men. And so I wonder how you think about this. I think the museum as an element of a society is actually very reflective of our collective cultural ecosystem. So, you know, it is a norm and for, you know, museums to be directed by uh, uh, white male for the longest time. And it's still quite a bit of the uh, situation today. But I think here as a society, we're all going to challenge the status quo. I think if uh, any field, because we are working in the museum field, and particularly the art museum field, a tremendous need for diversity among the leaders. So I think this is very illustrative. But I was delighted to say that our museum, from 1995, pointed a Japanese-American woman, Emily Sano, as the director, and that is a milestone. She was born here as um, the Japanese-Americans, and succeeding her, I I am a first-generation immigrant, so I think we bring our lived experiences in different ways to contribute to the Asian Art Museum. Yeah, for sure. And looking at the the demographics of the Bay Area, you can really see a sort of parallel. So around the time that Emily Sano was 
was uh, appointed director, I think that was in 1990. And this graph is showing the Asian, Asian population as a percentage from the U.S. Census data of the nine, county bay, you know, the nine counties around the San Francisco Bay Area. You can see the lowest point is 1960, around the time that the f- museum was founded. And of course, now it's, um, well, that's from 2010, saying 23%. And I think in San Francisco, it's more like 30%. Yeah, I think this had a lot to do with the immigration reform in the mm-hmm. mid-1960s. Right, right. So really about reflecting our community. And this is a slide that just kind of shows some of the iconic pieces from the Brundage Collection. And was that a big, um, a big deal for you to come and work with this collection? Absolutely. You know, I have been in the museum for field for more than uh, 40 years. First seven in my hometown, Shanghai, Shanghai Museum and then the rest in America, different museums. So as an Asian specialist, particularly Chinese art specialist, I know this collection by reputation very well. And I studied the collection through publications and I had opportunities to come to visit for quite a few times. So this is a dream come true for me because this has a world-class collection of Asian art. So I think, for example, some of the highlights from the Brindage collection at that time. But again, you know, we celebrate the cultures, they create those marvelous works of art. But also, as I say, we need to look at history straight on. And one part of the history is that it's not all Asian arts and cultures are well represented in the collection. So over uh, our history of more than 50 years, the museum collection has grown more than double of what originally gifted, including the cultures that are underrepresented, such as Filipino art. And having program addressing the issues that has never been addressed before, such as the provenance. I think these are all very important topics. So museum has grown and will continue to grow. And we have still so much room to grow in order to really enhance our value to our community, and particularly representing underserved communities. Yeah. Okay, so part of this is, uh, part of that work is through this transformation project to enable us to expand into those areas. We have a short video that, I think I click it one more time, and we can talk over it, but this is really showing some of the work behind the scenes to get us into this transformed, continual state of transformation. And watching this reminds me of all the many hands that, you know, we're seeing curators, registrars, preparators, um, all the technical work that goes behind creating mounts to make sure that, you know, in earthquake country, things don't topple over and and crash. So um, conservators, did I mention them? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Preparators, but also educators was installed and curators, of course. Many arguments over labels. Yes. What does this word mean? Do people know what this word means? So when I see this video, I see two things. One is great art. Second is great people. Mm -hmm. Our teams are constantly inspired by my colleagues, including you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. The feeling's mutual. And tell us what's going on in this image. Yeah, this is a upside down A, our logo as our transformation project. Mathematically speaking, upside down A meaning for all, which Asia Museum is for all. For us to go through the transformation project, of course, we would need the resources. And wow, what a wonderful success we had. We raised $103 million. Many, many 
uh, segments of the community came out to contribute. Here, where you, you are looking at the, um, the logo honoring the community face of the campaign, and it's just so wonderful to see people investing in the Asian Museum, engage with the Asian Museum, but also help us to raise our bar to be more excellent. So one of the major aspects of our transformation plan, um, project is to actually enlarge our stage, just like the stage, <laughs> right? Enlarge the stage so we can perform better, serve better. And it has always been in my consciousness that Asia has become an essential part of American life, economically speaking, not yet culturally and artistically. Asian arts culture still, often the case, considered as a special category. I think that is our challenge, but more importantly, that is our opportunity. So we want to have a larger stage, have a richer programs, more dynamic programs that are relevant to our life today. Same time, of course, we want to awaken the past, telling new stories about our collections. For example, I think we have a slide coming up. This is one of our most famous objects, ancient Chinese bronze vessels made 3,000 years ago. Only one in the entire universe. This tells you the caliber of our collection. Now we can tell the story more than ever before. For example, casting technology. The fabrication technology responsible for the making of this vessel was the most advanced in the world 3,000 years ago. So we're in the north end of the Silicon Valley. We want to engage people who are technologically interested. Another dimension is environmental concern. There's, there were rhinos roaming in ancient China everywhere. Then it became extinct in about 16th, 17th centuries. So this is a story that can be repeated in all over the world, how we can be conscious of the environmental change and do our job to protect the environment. And it's in here, we're using art to engage you, you for that conversation. And doing so, the digital technology is very important. We're using video to showcase the casting process mm -hmm. and showcase you the rhino, particularly the Sumatran rhino that our vessel was of the type, only surviving in some pockets on the Indonesian island nowadays, mm -hmm. right? So how we can prevent them from extinct entirely. And of course, engaging all kinds of educational programs, other amenities in the museum, including our restaurant, our cafe. But when doing so, we're also very conscious about accessibility. But you can talk maybe yeah, a Yeah, I mean, that. and you know, looking at this slide, I'm, I'm thinking about one, a couple of things. One is the digital really gives us this platform to create content for accessibility. So we're in the midst of creating an ASL tour, an American Sign Language tour that we'll be recording and will be available on iPads that people can borrow. And we've also been doing a lot of descriptive audio, working with local blind and visually impaired folks who are art lovers and really want us to do this, this work. But it's also hard to keep up with the digital. The technology is moving so quickly, and it is really hard for museums to be on the cutting edge. So... Um, it already feels like we need to um, have a plan for the five-year plan for, you know, the obsolescence of these devices. Yes, and I, in the end, it's always about what the value 
you have and what program you want to create, then you're asking what technology, right? technology tool. But also, I think te technology more than that now. Because so much art is digital art. So digital is both a tool and also content. And we are very much engaging that area too. We'll talk about that just in a second or two on that front as well. The marriage of art and technology. And it also helps us connect with real-time people who are from the regions that we're, we're surfacing in our, in our collections, you know, thinking about what is life like in, you know, in that region of China where, where the rhino was, was discovered. You know, there are probably some very modern cities. Mm -hmm. that, um, so really keeping up to date with what, what these places really are about and not being locked into a kind of um, historical view of yeah, stereotypical Asia. Mm -hmm. view or, you know, uh, uh, the certain tropes. Right. Right. I think the world is changing so fast. Yeah. 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 And here, and also another part is actually the contemporary art, and particularly contemporary art from our own community created by Asian American artists. We did not know pandemic would come. Nobody probably would know. But before that, we already had an idea of turning the museum inside out. For me, the museum's walls are not only protections, but it should be the first galleries to engage visitors, whether visitors from our own communities or tourism, tourists from afar. So in this case, that we decided to have murals on the pedestrian level, one level up, as well as all door art terrace, which is still being constructed now, all three levels along the high street. Pandemic came, the museum had to close down. But in a way, museum never closed down because we have art you can see and design to be seen more from the outside museum than inside museum. In this particular case, the mural by Filipino-American women artist Jennifer Wolford, the mural one level above, the Chinese-American woman artist Chanel Miller, and further a level above by Indian-American women artist Charles Chang-Jiva. All very topical issues about recognition of Asian-American art history, about women's rights, particularly fight against sexual violence. So these are the messages that we send by partnering with artists. And also, we create a platform for Asian-American art. And it's um, it's really exciting how how different the Hyde Street exterior is. It's it's a true transformation mm -hmm. from what was there before. So I don't know if everyone can see this picture. Actually, your beard isn't that long yet, Jay. But yeah. <laughs> um, this was kind of our pandemic mode. Uh, we one of the projects we did was called Artifacts, and we were doing a lot of. Uh, recording using Zoom, a tool that none of us knew existed until March of 2020. Um, and thank goodness we had it because yes. it allowed us to continue having impact. Um, and, but how did we survive? Yeah, I think uh, we survived by sheer collective effort and not only by the museum staff and the board, but the, again, the all the supporters in, in San Francisco Bay Area. But I say, you know, the reason I had a beard because I vowed to, you know, you probably remember to the staff that I won't, sh I will grow a beard until we reopen. So I started beard in March tw 2020. Then actually I shaved, I think either in late September or early October when city allowed us to open. So it was pretty long at that time. 
And uh, then three weeks later, the city said, hey, you have to close again because there's a you know, upsurge again. But again, we'll be open this much. Mm-hmm. So after a year, nearly a year, closed. So it is a really very hard time. But first of all, I would like to thank our staff for their sacrifices. Stayed fast, dedicated to the museum and collectively sacrificed in order to sustain the museum. And also I want to thank our board and all the supporters for really lending uh, for really gifting to the museum emergency funds. And then, of course, we had the PPP loan, the Paycheck Protection Program, including also Mellon Foundation's a large grant. Really, they recognize the value of a culturally specific museum like Asian Art Museum, our value for the American society and for our own community. So this kind of collective effort really sustained us for the year. But we've been very busy, even though the museum is closed, the art will be in stores such as the murals and many other things going on. One thing is that we quickly pivoted our museum into a virtual museum. So as I mentioned earlier, one of our transformation projects, a key aspect, is digital. We invested in digital in order to tell multiple stories about our collection, our special exhibitions, but also once the pandemic forced the museum to physically close down, we very quickly became a virtual museum as you can see, this is only eight squares, very small sampling of the range of programs, very diverse program. And of course, one major focus is to serve the visitors near and far, but also particularly our visitors from our own communities, addressing the issues that confront all of us. And one of the strategies employed by the public programs team is to really focus on uh, diversity and inclusion through th- who they s- choose to work with and the topics that they're um, employing, and also having fun. Yes, and we build a lot of allyship yeah. through th- this kind of programs right. and mutually supportive to each other. Yeah. Okay, so let's shift gears to the future. We want to um, get through this so we can have time for some questions. Yeah. Um, speaking of allyship, could you tell us about the Know Our Names uh, project and the museum's response to the the hate crimes against Asian Americans, that is still an ongoing issue. Yeah, to me, future is never in a future tense. Future is always in the present tense. Future always starts from today. And today, our community, particularly Asian American community, as well as black and brown community, are faced with rampant racism. And because of COVID, there's so much anti-Asian hate going on. And our museum need to make a stand, and we do so very, very forcefully. We want to make a statement, but also we want to fulfill our promise, a statement, through artistic actions. Mm-hmm. Art is our language. Art is our content. I think we start out by knowing our names. We Asian Americans are real individuals. All the artists represented in Jennifer Wolfer's murals are the important Asian-American artists, that their names are still very little known by the public at large. So let's start from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, as I said, even though the museum was physically closed down during the pandemic, but our team has been very busy installing art. And I said that the museum aims to and strives to be a leading platform for Asian-American artists. And here you see an uh, art hanging from the ceiling. is being installed, which you can see in the museum now. 
as well as the uh, online exhibitions, both as physical component in the museum, but also videos that uh, by dozens, dozens of uh, Asian uh, artists in Asia as well as Asian American artists here, mm -hmm. commenting on the topical issues that deeply affects not only America, but global world. Mm -hmm. So that's how we fulfill our future, starting our journey. And another thing is that, as I said, we're conscious of we are in the north end of Silicon Valley. And the marriage of art and technology is one area we want to focus on and want to be cognizant. So many people of Asian descent have made a wonderful contribution to the technological innovation in the Silicon Valley. What you're looking at is a wonderful exhibition, deeply immersive and interactive by Japan-based artist collaborative called Team Lab. So you can step into that. And we can still talk over that. Yeah. It's interactive, it is immersive, it is engaged four of your five senses, visual art, you can see, you can hear that beautiful music. You are vigorously encouraged to touch the art because it's interactive. And the algorithm is such, it's never repeats itself entirely, right? So that so you have to develop a behavior that's somewhat different in the normal part of the museum <laughs> where you encourage people don't touch. You touch with your eyes, with your passion, but with not hand. This exhibition you touch. Then, of course, you can, in this case, also smell the beautiful scent. The only thing you could not do is to bite anything <laughs> off the wall. You can go to our cafe. We have a wonderful cafe run by a young Korean-American chef. <laughs> so you can do that as well. Nobody. So that's one area. The, another area, as I already said um, previously, a leading platform for Asian-American artists. Here you see Carlos Vila, a first major survey of his work, and also Bernice Bing. Both are deeply in the history, particularly artistic history of San Francisco Bay Area. So we want to showcase their work. But we are not only served as a platform, because curating itself is a form of art. How we work with artists, past, present, or in future itself is a form of art. And we do so, indeed, again, informed by the value that we champion and we stand for. And do you want to mention the Lost Kingdoms of Ancient China, which is an amazing archaeological exhibit that comes from a very a place that most Americans have heard of? That's right. I thank you for mentioning this, because this show is also very dear to my heart. As I said, I'm a China specialist. Actually, I'm specialized in China, ancient China. But I say there's no ancient art. There's only contemporary art. Where art was made, whether today or 1,000 years ago, or 5,000 years ago. It was always contemporary when it was made. So I think inform our future, one key word is contemporary. Not only art made by living artists, but also contemporary experience of the art they made in the past. Because art has endless potentials. It's up to us to awaken it, ask new questions, find new learnings from it new lessons from it as well. So I think how to make ancient art relevant to our life today is as exciting as engaging the art made by living artists. 
and and the collection is coming from the Hubei Provincial Hubei Provincial. Yeah. Actually, the, from the mostly from the city of Wuhan. Yeah. That is the pandemic uh, started. I think it's very important. Actually, I think a great opportunity to learn about the great culture, ancient cultures, yeah. thrived in that area. I think we need to learn more among each other. Mm -hmm. The more learning between people, the more cultural understanding will help increase empathy. And the more empathy will help decrease hate yeah. and misunderstanding. And something that I think Carlos Villa, as a teacher, an educator, and an artist in, um, in San Francisco, who trained a whole many generations of artists with an activist mindset, um, I think he would also embrace that, that idea. Of Absolutely. And he had a larger-than-life contributions through teaching in San Francisco Art Institute, as well as in many community activities and so on and so forth. He was a great artist himself. But his impact yeah. on, his, on the people of his time, but also in our generation, right? And unfortunately, he passed away. But I think his legacy and his contribution is very much alive. And the Asian Museum will make sure that we continue to raise awareness of his contribution. And that is symbolic of many artists of his generations. In fact, Jennifer Wolford was one of his students, I believe. I believe so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And same we can say about Bernice Bing as yeah. well. Yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So a museum for all, Asian for all, as symbolized by what upside-down upside A uh, uh, symbol. But the, again, Asian for all is also means we need to particularly enhance our service to underserve the communities. I think that is, in doing that well, we can truly make Asian art and culture for all. I'm looking for a day, hopefully in our lifetime, then everybody can say Asian art and culture has become an essential part of American life. Mm. Mm -hmm. hmm. And um, we do have a program at the Asian Art Museum Indeed. tonight with Chanel <laughs> Miller, but I, I've been told it's sold out, but we're recording it and it will be available on our YouTube channel. Um, so I just wanted to plug that. And I think... We would love to hear what questions you all have for Jay and, um, and what's happening at the museum. Are there any questions from the audience? Well, thank you. Or just have a conversation with you all. And while we're gathering those, I, um, I, I can plant one question, which is, you know, I had the privilege of meeting Carlos Villa once, and he's an amazing person. And... Um, really affected me and I just wonder what he would think about a a show dedicated to him happening at the Asian Art Museum given where he probably thought our museum was at one time thank you I think he would smile down at us but he will also say keep up yeah keep going yeah keep going mm -hmm. <laughs> you're not done yet far from being done <laughs> Okay, um, here's a question from our audience. With a prosperous middle class growing throughout Asia, do you expect the Asian Art Museum to begin showing more young living Asian artists? For example, more Ai Weiwei and fewer old bowls. Yeah, actually, thank you <laughs> for question. mentioning this. One of the work that's shining in the evening when it's dark, become even more striking, is a, is a installation called the Fountain of Light by Ai Weiwei. 
that is also designed to be viewed more from the street rather than on the art terrace. Art terrace, once it's open, I'd love to invite all of you and to view it from that angle as well. So indeed, and the contemporary art is uh, going to be a major growth for the ancient art museum. But as I said, when we talk about contemporary art, I also focus on contemporary experience of all kinds of art as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, hopefully you've seen the Ai Weiwei piece. Um, I wish we could get out onto the terrace and see it, but you can actually view it also from inside the escalator. That's escalator a wonderful well. way to see it. Um, Dr. Shu, how do you define the Asians' role in the constellation of San Francisco museums? What makes the Asian Art Museum unique? I think in many ways uh, there's commonality because I believe that we are also a global museum because I think connection with Asia is everywhere. But we do look at the global world from the Asian perspectives. And also here in America, we're also looking at the world from the perspective of Asian-American experience in our American history. So I think these are the very important. So one big change, actually, we may summarize for the Asian Art Museum is that when we were founded, in 1966, opened the door in 1966. This is a museum of classical Asian art made in geographical Asia. Today, we're focusing on connections. That global connections with Asia, connection of the art of the past with art of the present, and the connection of art to our life today and life of all members of our world but of course, Asian American in particular. Um, And this is uh, an interesting question. Are there any controversies related to how Brundage amassed his collection? Recently, there has been more discussion of museums returning stolen or pillaged items. Does this relate to any of the Brundage collection? Yeah, actually, our museum has a project called the Rehistory. Deb, you are leading it. So maybe I only say a few words and you can amplify more. As I said, Museum has been doing program that was not was not likely conceived during the old days, so to speak. This kind of pro, 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 program, including provenance, every museum need to start from scratch, examining how, when the objects enter into their collection, seeking the truth. So I think our rehistory is doing that, and we actually have a repatriate objects as well, right? I saw that. I think it, this is a part of the homework that every museum needs to do with diligence, with industry, with dedication. So the Rehistory Project that Jay mentions is a cross-departmental team of people from all different parts of the museum who care about this work to carefully examine the the, proven, the history of how the objects came into the collection, and it's with curators and educators and preparators and um, folks in our marketing department. And one of the things, well, one of the challenges was we started that project when we were all working from home, and nobody really had access to be able to go in and, and go through the paper files. But the paper files are, are sometimes pretty opaque. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes what we know about things in our collection is that which dealer Brundage bought them from. But we often do, didn't know where the dealer acquired the object from. Mm-hmm. 
And even today, there are objects that, you know, please don't buy them. <laughs> um, there's, um, you know, things that are being sold that, you know, really, um, when we support the art market, then it supports the continued ongoing pillage, especially in areas where there's um, instability, government yeah. instability. Um, we've had three programs as part of our rehistory program. The first one was examining Brundage's racist um, legacies, and the second one was if objects could talk, and it was looking at provenance, uh, particularly on Chinese collecting. And uh, and then the third program was on blood antiquities, and we talked in detail about, um, some of you may have read in the New York Times, <coughs> a piece about uh, ivory panels from the... Um, Palace in a palace in Afghanistan that then was later repurposed in Mausolea and then later left Afghanistan. Found its they found their way to the market, and one of those pan panels is in the Asian Art Museum collection. And do you want to talk about some of the work that you and <coughs> Rob have been doing to consider yes, that piece? Absolutely, I think we must examine how the piece came into the museum. Any of this particular case, the piece came to the museum in 1980s. And that was a time when Afghanistan, uh, Soviet withdrawal, and the civil war started. So all the possible evidences indicates the most likely did not leave the country legally. In other words, we find that the compelling evidence that Asian Museum should not own it. So we have begun the deaccession process. But also I want to ask ourselves the question, where does our responsibility stop? So deaccession meaning you're taking something out of your collection, you no longer own this. But I think this is one action. And as an institution, we need to continue to work with all partners involved, provide assurance that the caretaking of this piece or any piece will be done in the most professional fashion for the long-term survival of this particular piece. But I think, the first of all, you really need to make a determination that you have the legal right to own the piece or not. I think this provenance research is extremely important because not only it will help institutions to discover bad apples, so to speak, to prevent it from rotting the whole basket. Mm. Because art comes in any different forms and manners. There's in China, for example, there's a porcelain that's explicitly made for export, for circulating globally. So not all the art and same. Right. So I think we but we must be particularly careful when we understand a work of art meant to be in situ for site specific. This is number one sort of uh, uh, sign that uh, we need to look into the history, how it left. But as you say, often the case, the history is so opaque. But that does not prevent anybody from really trying hard. Yeah. 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 So we're open to these, these inquiries, and, and uh, there's a lot of work ahead. But um, we'll be updating labels as we discover these stories, and we already have a new label for that panel from Afghanistan that's currently on view yes. in the West Asian galleries. I think the first is to be transparent. Yeah. 
about it. Yes. And Jay, it looks like I'm getting the high sign that we may be out of time. Is that, is that true? <laughs> yes. Um, I'm sorry we didn't get through all of your questions, but we really appreciate um, you all having good questions for us. And um, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Shu and Deb, for a very enlightening conversation. Um, and we appreciate your making this program possible this evening. But I also want to thank our audience, as well as those who are listening online. We are very grateful today to Dr. Shu and Deb uh, for uh, taking the time to be with us this evening and talk about the challenges that are facing museums and what needs to be done to maintain public interest in art during this worldwide pandemic. And to our audience again, thank you for being with us. We appreciate your support. And uh, if you would like to go online to www.commonwealthclub.org, it will tell you about all of the forthcoming programs that the club will be presenting in the next few weeks. And now, Thank you again, and I declare the meeting of the Commonwealth Club commemorating its 118th year of enlightened discussion is now officially adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.